Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8 a.m. Central African time if you are just joining us. Good morning and welcome to the last hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African Perspective, broadcasting from our studios in Johannesburg. And of course, we are live, so you can uh, send us your WhatsApp messages and tweets. Uh, if you want to WhatsApp us, it's 763003327. That is 763003327. And if you're outside of the South African borders, be sure to use the international dialing code which is plus two seven now we are on the frequency seven two three zero kilohertz on the 41 meter band to southern africa and one one nine two five kilohertz on the 19 meter band to far west africa and on dstv's audio bouquets channel 802 so be sure to let all of your friends know that they can tune in via all of these uh, different platforms my name is samora magesi i am standing in for lulu gabu this morning and i'm in studio with uh, tabisa lehoko and figile lengwati some top stories on africa rise and shine at this hour zimbabweans prepare to pr- celebrate national heroes day the ebola vaccination campaign gets underway in the drc and in economics kenyan treasury urged to cut huge appetite for foreign debt and in sports sri lanka thrashed south africa in the final match of the odi series but first our last update for africa rise and shine on the news uh, here is Anne musa A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Vote counting is underway across Mali after a presidential runoff in which a poll worker was killed and 100 polling stations were forced to close. This due to a security threat from Islamist militants. Security was boosted ahead of Sunday's second round between President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita and former Finance Minister Somalia Sisei. However, according to a local observer group, over 100 polling stations had to be closed in the rest of central and northern regions. ZANU-PF is expected to file opposing papers in Zimbabwe's constitutional court before the end of the day against the MDC Alliance application to have the July 30th poll results nullified. The ruling party's legal affairs department says its 12-member legal team is ready to challenge the opposition's case. On Friday, the MDC Alliance launched papers in which it contested the manner in which the elections were held and the final numbers from the 2018 elections. The Zimbabwe Electoral Commission announced after the vote that ZANU-PF had maintained its two-thirds majority and President Emerson Mnangagwa had won by a narrow margin in the presidential race. A rebel group in Ethiopia has declared a unilateral ceasefire. The Ogaden National Liberation Front has been fighting for autonomy in the vast Somali-speaking region for decades. The rebel group now says it wants a peaceful, negotiated settlement. The BBC's David Bamford reports on the background. The Ogaden is a plateau in eastern Ethiopia and the home of most of the country's ethnic Somalis. The Ogaden National Liberation Front was established in the 1980s after Ethiopia defeated neighboring Somalia in a war. In the past, it's demanded autonomy or independence from Ethiopia and there have been military clashes. But politics in Addis Ababa have moved on. The country has a new prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, who says he's committed to engagement. He's used the federal army to take on intransigent elements in the Somali region administration.
At least 39 people, including 12 children, have been killed in a blast at a building in Syria's northwestern province of Idlib. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says two buildings collapsed, one of which is thought to have held munitions belonging to an arms trafficker. Rescue workers are using bulldozers to remove rubble in the search for the dozens of people who are missing, and it's feared the death toll could rise. The cause of the blast has not yet been established. Idlib is the last major rebel-held area and is expected to be the next next target for the Syrian armed forces. And finally, five paramilitary officers and a civilian have been killed between the rural communes of Bongo and Wagaru in Burkina Faso's far east. State television reports the vehicle hit an explosive device Late Saturday, when officers were escorting miners, mining workers, earlier this month, suspected jihadists destroyed a vehicle trying to free detained extremists. In February, they attacked and killed a policeman, wounding two others. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Now, Zimbabwean President-elect Emerson Mnagwagwa's planned inauguration has been postponed indefinitely after the opposition filed a court challenge against the election. Now, the event was supposed to take place in Harare yesterday, two weeks after Mnagwagwa was declared the winner of the elections last week. The MDC Alliance Party alleges that there were were irregularities in the country's first vote since long-term leader Robert Mugabe was deposed. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. The political battle between ZANU-PF's Emerson Mnangagwa and young opposition leader Noson Chamisa has been accelerated into the courts, forcing government to put on hold the presidential inauguration on Sunday. Chamisa's court application forced Sunday's inauguration to be cancelled, although Mnangagwa was declared the presidential election winner by ZEC in a race with 23 candidates. 40-year-old opposition leader is seeking a declaration by the constitutional court to have the presidential results nullified on the basis of alleged rigging. Delegates from across Africa, including South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, had to cancel his trip to Harare for the inauguration at the 11th hour. The stage at the venue, the National Sports Stadium in the capital, had to be taken down after the court challenge on Friday, Nelson Chamisa's lawyer, advocate Tabani Mpofu, explained the legal process. Okay, the application has been lodged. 
Uh, as you can see, it is a thick application. Apart from this application, there is also a separate bundle of evidence which deals with all the issues that are raised in this application. We are seeking a declaration to the effect that the presidential was not properly conducted, it was not conducted in terms of the constitution, it was not conducted in terms of the electoral act, it was not conducted in terms of standards uh, of fairness, uh, transparency and accountability. Uh, consequently, we also seek a declaration to the effect uh, that the announcement made by uh, Justice Shigumba uh, declaring uh, Comrade Emerson Dambuzumnangagwa is the duly elected president of Zimbabwe uh, is faulty at law, uh, it is null and void, uh, and must be set aside. And on the basis of the evidence uh, that is that we've placed before the court, we seek in the main relief to the effect that the court must declare uh, the proper winner, and that proper winner is my client. In the alternative, we seek uh, that there be another uh, election. Uh, the Supreme Court, sitting as the Constitutional Court, should resolve the matter filed on Friday in 14 days, and only then will the inauguration take place, Tabani said. Uh, in this regard, the inauguration, there is no inauguration that's going to take place uh, up until the matter has been resolved by the, the court. That is the position. Elections this year were watershed as they were the first to be conducted after the resignation of Robert Mugabe last year following a coup. However, Mpofu argued that his team had managed to unearth multiple irregularities, hence the court challenge. But, uh, but, but there are so many things that you're going to see in the application. For instance, we've managed to place before the courts uh, unpopulated, those signed V11 forms. And how does that happen? We've managed to place before the courts uh, V11 forms uh, which show an attempt to erase the figures that had been that had been entered we've managed to place before the court all the mathematical and stat statistical irregularities we've managed to place before the court uh, the background issues that bear on the conduct of a free uh, fair and credible election okay. so what what must now do is to argue the matter in all fairness if the judges find the evidence overwhelming this will be the first time in the history of zimbabwe that a presidential election result will be reversed again this will be the first time a court decision on elections is given timelessly but as it stands tensions are rising in both zanu pf and mdc and the war on social media has been intensified in arare zimbabwe for channel africa this is simon muchemwa Still keeping with Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe commemorates Heroes Day today. The relatives of those who participated in the armed struggle say the pending constitutional case in which the MDC is challenging election results will not stop them from joining the celebrations. And Mbali Tatani uh, reports from Harare. Thousands of Zimbabweans are expected to gather at the country's national shrine, the Heroes Acre in Harare, as they celebrate men and women who fought for the liberation of Zimbabwe. Every year, families of those who sacrificed their lives celebrate their heroic deeds. But the all-important day for this country is happening at a time following Zimbabwe's historical 2018 elections. The mood in the country is tense after the opposition, the MDC Alliance, launched papers at the Constitutional Court challenging the outcome of the polls. 
putting a halt on the inauguration, which was expected to be held on the 12th of August. But in the midst of the political problems, determined family members say they want a better Zimbabwe and will continue to remember their heroes like Pamela Takere, who is the widow of Edgar Takere, one of the founding members of ZANU-PF. We feel respected by the government. We are so happy to visit this place. That's what is the day, like tomorrow is the day when we are going to see the graves of our late husbands, brothers, sisters, cousins, whoever. We feel great for this day. We always remember our relatives in such a day. Thank you very much to the government for such an event. Other families of those who led the country after independence also share the same sentiments, such as the widow of the first foreign affairs minister, Eben Magwende. Zimbabwe should never, never again go back. We cannot, history cannot repeat itself. We want Zimbabwe to remain where it is. Zimbabwe is through blood and flesh. Some young relatives of Zimbabwe's heroes also say they are optimistic about the country's future despite the political developments. Zenzo Ngobo is the grandchild of the country's former vice president, Simon Muzende. Basically, I feel the day gives us a reflection of where we came from, like where we get to celebrate our heroes, the heroes that brought our freedom, the freedoms we enjoy today. In my case, particularly, my grandfather, the late vice president, uh, has been like, what, 14, 15 years now. Then uh, last year, recently, we recently lost my grandmother last year. So, yeah, this is like the first year without her. So coming to just basically be with her. I believe the future is bright. I believe, yeah, the, there's hope. There's hope for us, the young generation. Yeah, if we manage to work together, if we just manage to look forward, I believe there is. There is a future for Zimbabwe. It is not clear whether former President Robert Mugabe will attend the commemoration. Sunday Times Bureau Chief in Zimbabwe, Reindlof, who says a surprise attendance by Mugabe is unlikely. The events of Election Eve were very straightforward in terms of his support and how he has uh, turned his back on ZANU-PF and turned his back on the current administration. So I don't foresee where he would uh, then, you know, also to, uh, to, to attend the celebrations and be part and parcel of that grouping. I think it's very clear in terms of where he stands, what he thinks of them, his views, and uh, it's now out in the open. So it tends to be seen, you know, how relations go and proceed from here on. On Tuesday, the country will celebrate Defence Forces Day and on Wednesday, the Electoral Commission is expected to respond to the MDC Alliance's court challenge. Ambali Tetani in Harare in Zimbabwe. Very big thank you to Mbali Tetani for filing that report. But uh, just some FYI, today is Monday the 13th of August and it is the 225th day of 2018. Can you believe that there are only 140 days left in the year? That is 140 days left in 2018. I mean, I look at this year and I'm already thinking how um, it was just starting what feels like yesterday, you know? Um, or like two days ago, but already it's 225 days into the year. Now, just a brief history of today in history of what happened uh, on Mon- on August 13th. Uh, today, in 1961, East Germany sealed off the border between Berlin's eastern and western sectors before building a wall that could divide the city for the next 28 years. 
And today in 1992, the African National Congress suspends all formal talks with the South African government because 14 of its demands had not been met. And also in 1966, President Habib Ali Bourguiba bans the wearing of miniskirts in Tunisia. Last one for now. In 2003, Libya and families of victims of the 1988 bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, signed an agreement to pay as much as $2.7 billion in repatriations. Now, the agreement also called for Libya to acknowledge responsibility for the bombing. Do stay tuned to uh, Africa Rise and Shine right here on Channel Africa, and we'll give you a lot more of those uh, today in histories with regards to the 13th of August. Now, South Africa's relationship with uh, other SADC countries is strengthening with more trade deals having been signed recently with DRC and Zambia. Now, President Cyril Ramaphosa held bilateral talks with President Edgar Lungu of Zambia and Joseph Kabila, President of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, he says more commitments are being signed or are to be signed, which will boost the economy of Af- the African continent. Abongile Dumako reports. President Cyril Ramaphosa says he's happy with what has been achieved by South Africa thus far in advancing relations with countries within the SADC region. He spent two days in engagements with his counterparts, Zambian President Edgar Lungu and Joseph Kabila of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they discussed intra-trade relations and the economic and political developments within the region. Ramaphosa says development is drawing closer for all Africans in the continent. Politically, we're solidifying the very strong relations we've always had. Secondly, economically, we're opening new channels of economic uh, dealings with them, strengthening the economic integration uh, project that we have for the region. And socially, we've also been opening pathways for our peoples in the various regions to be able to continue dealing with each other, opening up tourism routes. President Cyril Ramaphosa has called on all those involved in the developments happening in Zimbabwe following the general elections last month to wait for due processes to take place. The inauguration of Zimbabwe president-elect Emerson Mnangagwa has been postponed due to quite challenges on the elections outcome by the MTC alliance. Ramaphosa explains. What I think we must all be pleased about is that things will be held in terms of uh, the law, judicial processes, and we must wait for that. Any party that contests the outcome of elections must follow due process, and it appears now that due process is being followed, and we call upon everyone to wait for the outcome of that whole process. Ramaphosa says he's confident that the Democratic Republic of Congo will hold a fair and peaceful general election this coming December. I was quite satisfied in knowing that they are ready, they've registered the voters, and uh, that uh, they, they are going to be able to hold a peaceful and successful uh, elections. And by all accounts, I got an impression that uh, the DRC is ready, willing and prepared to hold uh, peaceful elections. So that for me 
was uh, quite satisfactory. Ramaphosa was accompanied by Minister of International Relations, Lindy Wesisulu, and the Minister of State Security, Dipu Walitzadzi Duba. I'm Abongile Dumago in Kinshasa, DRC. Ebola vaccinations are underway in the Democratic Republic of Congo's North Kivu province as the country tries to stem its 10th outbreak of the disease. According to the Ministry of Public Health, this round of vaccinations is targeting, among others, uh, high-risk populations, including first-line responders and health workers. For more on this, Elizabeth Ledicha spoke to Tarik Yasarevich from the World Health Organization. Well, uh, this will be again vaccination uh, that is being done using ring method. So same as we have done in Equatorial Province, people who will be reached out to people who are contacts of people who have been tested positive for Ebola. So everyone around the person who is positive for the virus and then contacts of those contacts, basically making rings about a, a sick person. To that, we also add health workers and responders because they are also at a higher risk. So it is basically the same method that is being already used. Now, using this ring vaccination method, Tarek, how easy or difficult do you expect tracing contacts in North Kivu to be? Exactly. So this is a big challenge right now. Our epidemiological teams are arriving and are mapping the extent of the outbreak and also making this contact list. So then we have to see where those contacts are and how we can reach them in the safest way. So this is really the work that is beginning now. And then uh, hopefully we will be able to get to people who need to be vaccinated. Now, because of the security situation in North Kivu, we may be uh, flexible. And the recommendation is also that in case that access is limited, we may have a very limited geographical area to target with vaccination. Apart from the security situation, what other challenges are you confronted with on the ground? Well, as we had in Equatorial Province, so terrain is not easy, there's not always paved roads, sometimes we need to travel long distances, which is time consuming. So we have all of that, as we had in a previous outbreak, and on top of that, we have this additional complexity that's a security that may be a major constraint when it comes to reaching people who need to be looked at. And are there enough doses of the vaccine available currently for this round of vaccinations? Well, we have access to uh, 300,000 doses that exist uh, in the world right now. We have a leftover of uh, 3,200 from vaccination. In Equatorial Province, these vaccines have been already shipped to North Kivu and are already being used. Now, if there is a need for more, obviously we will ship more vaccines to DR Congo. I know it's still early to say, but has there been regional and international solidarity demonstrated so far in response to this latest Ebola outbreak? Well, partners who have been responding in previous outbreaks are already on the ground under the leadership of the Ministry of Health, our colleagues from UNICEF, IFRC, International Federation of Red Cross, our colleagues from Médecins Sans Frontières, from IOM, UNHCR, and especially a strong support is being provided by the United Nations Peacekeeping Mission because obviously they are in North Kivu in Goma with almost 20,000 soldiers, and this is something that can also be of use. So we have seen quick mobilization, so hopefully the security will not really prevent us from putting in place all those measures that, that we need to have. And that's Tarek Yasarevich, spokesperson for the World Health Organization, speaking to Channel Africa's Elizabeth Ledicha.
The time is now 7.20. It's 8.23 a.m. Central African time. Wow. You know what they say, time flies when you're having fun. And of course, I absolutely enjoy being here with you. Uh, But moving on right now, talking about the Peace Summit, African leaders last Friday gathered in Johannesburg for discussions on creating an Africa which is free of conflict. The African leaders of Peace Summit offered a platform for discussions on the role of the continent in advancing the global peace agenda as well as the promotion of sustainable peace and security across the continent. Now, this is, of course, through positive discourse. And Channel Africa's Ntantla Matlango was there and filed this report. The African Leaders of Peace Summit brought together former presidents, chief justices, ministers, speakers of parliament, royalty and youth leaders to promote a sustainable peace and security agenda across Africa through positive discourse. The high-level meeting provided a platform for African leaders to advocate an intergenerational dialogue to achieve a united Africa through a developed legal framework for a conflict-free Africa. Guests included former Mozambican President Joachim Chisano, former South African public protector Tulima Donzela, the Queen Mother of the Royal Bafugeng Nation, Dr. Simane Bonolo Molotlehi, as well as the Speaker of the National Parliament of Madagascar, Jean-Max Rakatomamanji, amongst others. More from former Mozambican President Joachim Chisano. Peace for Africa is a, a topic which has been there for many, many years. Actually, let us say colonization was a violence. It was a breach of peace of our societies. Slavery, the same. So the fight of the African people was a fight to recover peace. It's true that in Africa also, among Africans, there were wars, traditional wars, and in the course, some empires were formed. There was a reunification of people and so on here and there. So there were always uh, conflicts and search for peace and reconciliation. The Minister of Economic Planning in the Kingdom of Eswatini, Prince Langusembi, says peace is an important phenomenon. Peace is a very important phenomenon because it binds people together. We in the African continent embrace peace. It is true that legions of Africa are respected globally because they were advocate of peace and coexistence, thus forging the foundation of our democratic continent. We are grateful that this year we are celebrating the centenary of two advocates of peace and freedom, Nelson Mandela and Mama Albertina Sisulu. Such icons should motivate us to forge a peaceful environment in Africa. However, we are saddened by the developments in some parts of the world where mankind still endure miserable lives due to many different challenges that are mostly man-made. The summit heard that in order to achieve the goal of a peaceful and conflict-free Africa, a legal framework must be developed and a generation of active citizens raised up that will support the necessary preconditions for a peaceful and conflict-free continent. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Matlangu in Johannesburg. 
It has been 15 years since the terrorist attack on the UN compound at the Canal Hotel in Baghdad. A truck bomb killed about 22 international and local staff, including the top UN representative in Iraq, whose name was Sergio Vieira de Mello. Now, current and former staff who survived the blast on the 19th of August 2003 have been reflecting on the tragedy, which marked the first time the UN was deliberately targeted on a massive scale. Mujahid Hassan, who worked for the UN at the time, says although the attack left him with severe injuries, he still believes in the global organization and its role in his country's development. I am currently living in San Diego, California, and I work as an interpreter and a translator. Basically, I started working for Yenochi as a language assistant slash driver. And then when Yenochi was liquidating after the invasion, I was transferred to the IT department to be an IT assistant and at the time of the explosion I was sitting at my desk finalizing some stuff on my computer. It was the end of the day and I was just getting ready to go as usual enjoy some quality time playing table tennis with my colleagues. The office was uh, located on the uh, ground level and I was kind of sitting next to the window. The window was to my left. And amazingly, I just decided to switch positions with one of my colleagues who left that day exactly at 4.30. Otherwise, I would have been dead by now because his place got really damaged as a result of the blast. But I switched position with him, and the window was to the left of my side. That's why I got severely injured uh, to the left side of my body. To be honest, uh, I had no idea that this is a possibility. We had no idea that there was a car bomb or a trailer that came into the building and detonated. We were just looking around, making sure what is happening. Is this for real? Is this just a dream? And I was kind of constantly looking for my colleagues, and they were buried uh, under the rubble. And I was just looking around, but it was really dusty, and I couldn't see anything there. And I kept asking uh, the handymen who were coming to help. And the people just tried to find them because I really cannot see them. And eventually it turned out that they did actually help them. And I was kind of in a shock and I was not acting properly. Yeah, as I'm speaking of it right now, I can still remember exactly every single thing that happened that day. And amazingly, when I went back home the first time I came back to Iraq from London, after the first evacuation, I immediately took a taxi and went to the building and I wanted to explore every single spot of the of the building. The UN is my dream. The UN is my family. And I really cannot believe that this thing happened to my family, to the place that I enjoyed working at, and to my colleagues that I considered my close family members. And that was Mujahid Hassan, representative of the UN in Baghdad. And the time is now 8.30 Central African time. Wow, only 30 minutes left of Africa Rise and Shine. So let's get uh, our last uh, news headlines update from Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, at least 39 people, including 12 children, have been killed in a blast at a building in Syria's northwestern province of Idlib. 
Thousands of Zimbabweans together at the country's national shrine, the Heroes Acre in Harare, as they celebrate men and women who fought for Zimbabwe's liberation. And former White House aide Omarosa Manigold Newman tells NBC Television that she has personally heard a tape of President Donald Trump using racial slurs. Those are the stories making headlines. Now, as I had said earlier, today is the 225th day of 2018. There are 140 days left in this year. What are you going to do with your 140 days that you have left of 2018? Be sure to let us know using our social media platforms, of course, at Channel Africa uh, 1 on Twitter or at Rise Shine Africa as well. You can also send us a WhatsApp to 76300. 3327 that is 763003327 three, and if you're outside of the South African borders be sure to use that international dialing code which is plus 27 now on this 100 uh, on this 225th day of the year in 1960 uh Wabangi Shari achieved independence as the Central African Republic with David Dako the cousin of the former prime minister Bartholomew Boganda, who died in mysterious circumstances during the presidential election campaign as president. And in 1976, South Africa pledges support for U.S. effort to bring about negotiated settlement in Rhodesia, which is now known as Zimbabwe, saying failure would invite communist intervention. And lastly, today in 1978, an explosion in Palestinian building in the Palestinian building in Beirut kills about 200 people, including members of the Palestine Liberation Organization. Wow, um, that's, a, that's a lot of sad things that happened on this day, but hopefully going forward, uh, you know, we can have some good things that happen on this 225th day of the year. Channel Africa. Kulitra Njoyif, Addis Ababa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa, in Higali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Janowel Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Now, the community of Herschel Village in South Africa's Eastern Cape province have warned government that they will defend invasions of their land. Now, they say more than 700 sites have allegedly been allocated to Lesotho nationals who are in the country illegally. And our reporter, Nkululeko Nyembezi, visited the area and filed this report. The meeting called by the community of Herschel near Stakespreet was tense and the traditional committee had to walk out claiming their safety was in danger from the angry community. The committee alleged that people from Lesotho have illegal access to land, to social grants and RTP houses. They want relevant government departments to intervene to avoid violence in the area. Temba Lise Shasha is the community spokesperson. 
I have a concrete proof of what I'm talking about. There is no one with valid ID. You can even visit them now. You will find that the name of the person does not correspond with the name that appears on the ID document. They buy IDs from the people here. Some villagers even fraudulently adopted the Lesotho children and called them as theirs. They fraudulently register them to get birth certificates. And after that, they register for social grant and share the money among themselves. Community Policing Forum Chairperson Tetele Limnatoza believes that the free flow of illegal immigrants from Lesotho is a major problem and that government will continue to spend a lot of money if the influx of illegal immigrants is not properly controlled. Even we have said there's no need to put the police at the border gates because if you reach Taylor Bridge, on your left-hand side, the stop for taxis, almost 90% or 95% of the people, they are crossing the river. They don't go to the gate. So since the, the, the army was removed there, the border post, we don't see now why the police station is there. It's not even loose. I don't know what can I say. You can even go and see by your eyes and ears. There's no border gates. It's just because it's being put there. It's just what under the bridge if you say that the border posts are so strict. Well, the arm is no longer there. Provincial Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs spokesperson Mamkini Ngam says the issue is complicated and needs all relevant government departments to deal with it. The matter that is happening in sex trade and in Hessian, in as far as land sales are concerned, is a very complicated issue because it requires the attention of various sector departments in the province. And as such, we would want to appeal to all the affected parties to try and find a peaceful resolution to the matter and also appeal to them to speedily write uh, to us as the Department of Culture in the province as well as the local municipal to bring this matter to our attention. Sasa provincial spokesperson Luzugo Krina says they are not aware of the allegations. It is indeed regrettable that uh, Sasa we are not in a position to verify that because when a person comes to apply for a social grant he brings in a proof of residence, identification documents with affidavit and then we process a social grant application with those documents. Other than that, we wouldn't have any other means of verification because we trust the system of the Department of Home Affairs with which we are linked. Condoleezza Chairperson Chief Muelo Nongonyan has warned traditional leaders and subheadmen to stop allocating sites to illegal immigrants. It has been for quite for some time in that area. These uh, allegations that uh, some people are actually uh, giving sites uh, to uh, illegal immigrants and uh, to the detriment of the community. Our position is very, very clear, is that uh, uh, a traditional leader is a traditional leader of the community. There is no way that a traditional leader leader should allocate a site to somebody without consulting with the community consent. The situation among the villagers is tense and they want quick intervention from government and Grulego Nyembezi, HL, Nyastexpreet. All the way in this text break, letting us know what is happening there in terms of land immigration. Uh, as he said in Guruleko, you know, there are 700 sites that have allegedly been allocated to Lesotho nationals who are in the country illegally. But moving on right now, the time is 8.38 Central African time, right here on Africa Rise and Shine. Only 22 minutes left of the show, so be sure to get in contact with us uh, through all of our social media platforms and, of course, our emails. 
Now, the African Farmers Association of South Africa, otherwise known as AFASA, will host the Agribusiness Transformation Conference in South Africa's East Rand region uh, from Sunday the 19th to Tuesday the 21st of August. Now, this year's conference will be held under the theme Reorganize, Sustain and Industrialize, which is a follow-up to a successful conference that was held last year. For more on this conference, Channel Africa's Wandile Kalipa spoke to Dr. Vuyo Maslati, President of African Farmers Association of South Africa. Well, the 2018 AFASA Agri-Business Transformation Conference is something we are very excited about. We're happy that we hosted the first, the inaugural one in 2017, and it was very successful. The follow-up this year is basically very strategic and at the same time fits in terms of the narrative at three levels. One is the fact that we're hosting this at a time the country is focusing on the area of industrialization. And we are, as AFASA, looking at how do we ensure that we improve productivity to increase the participation of black farmers in commercial production and particularly as suppliers to agri-industry and other related industries. The second part, talks to the issue, I mean, just related to that, it follows the BRICS summit and the issues that we're dealing with, which relate to food security as well as the area of agribusiness transformation, where the same areas that were touched upon within the context of the fourth industrial revolution as part of the BRICS summit. And as a FASA, we are very happy to take those forward, the discussions, in terms of practical solutions that we are coming up with. The third level is around the issue of land reform. You know or probably realize that AFASA has been strong in terms of advocacy for land reform and the shift in terms of what is, you know, understood and experienced as the failure of land reform and what we believe needs to happen urgently in terms of a comprehensive, transformative land reform program. And as part of this, AFASA has been strongly also participating in this whole debate of expropriation without compensation in the side as land is concerned. So from our side, we believe that whilst we are pushing for land and equality at that level, it becomes important that this conference focuses on the production side and how we make sure that the people who get the land get to use the land and make sure that we increase the participation. And what we're focusing on, which is what we'll be launching a transformation master plan as part of this conference is that the transformation master plan is basically about black farmer value chain integration, which means in simple terms that across the board from the farm to the supply chain, we're making sure that farmers participate at that level. We want, for instance, to take beef commodities and we look from there in terms of are we training people appropriately? 
Are we giving people the right support? Are we giving people, you know, the right land, which is, you know, for food security, whether you're in communal land or as well as for commercial purposes, for both communal and freehold land? Doctor, now looking at the current situation as it is, this is the the first uh, AFASA agribusiness uh, conference took place last year. Now, when it comes to bridging the gap, water, land, and environment, how far has that gone? Well, this is what we're doing now, because with the first one, it was very useful for us to deal with the bridging the gap, because we started by creating awareness in terms of how, first of all, the issue of water is so related to the failure we are experiencing or the problems and obstacles of land and agriculture. And as far as that is concerned, we had the former Minister of Water and Sanitation, Nombula Mikonyana, and out of that, we established a joint committee between the department and ourselves which is specifically looking at the area of water access and water rights. So basically now, I mean, as part of this, we want to see progress and how we move forward in terms of a more consolidated approach. Similarly, as far as the Department of Land Affairs, we had a joint session from the conference where now we're beginning to look at them, the issues that were raised. and tackling them, you know, very specifically. But at this point, because of the process and also obviously the shift in, and changes in government, we are basically aligning the discussion with the shifts that are being discussed as far as land reform is concerned. And that's what we want to focus the conference on now. And that was Dr. Vuyo Mathati, President of African Farmers Association of South Africa, talking to Wandile Kalipa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The time is now 8.45. One last update from... uh, who is here to give us all things that are economics. Butabiso, yeah. are you ready? Yeah, yeah, no bad news, ne? Aye, uh, no. In fact, this is
Good morning. Ethiopian Airlines is the frontrunner to set up and manage a new national carrier for Nigeria. According to the International Air Transport Association, the state-owned carrier has outpaced regional competitors, Kenya Airways and South African Airways, to become Africa's largest airline by revenue and profit. Ethiopian Airline has been buying shares in other African airlines, a strategy aimed at gaining a competitive advantage against rivals such as those in the Gulf. The Federal Government of Nigeria has launched a new initiative under the Government Enterprise and Empowerment Program called the Trader Money. The initiative will empower 2 million petty traders between now and the end of the year. The government has explained that the aim for launching the scheme was to further enlarge its financial inclusion agenda for all Nigerians, regardless of social class and economic status. The media and publicity office of the vice president says the scheme, which was launched last week in the commercial capital Lagos, will grant a minimum of 30,000 loans in each state of federation and the federal capital territory. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, insists that a disciplinary action will be taken against employees who embarked on an illegal strike as the power utility is regarded an essential service. This despite the unions demanding that no disciplinary action be taken against striking workers. Last week, a trade union NUMSA threatened to withdraw from wage talks with ESCOM after accusing them of negotiating in bad faith. This has resulted in the parties delaying the signing of the wage agreement. The unions have accepted the latest offer, which includes a 707 US dollar one-off payment to workers who fall under the bargaining unit plus a 7.5% salary increase this year and another 7% for the next two years. Eskim's spokesperson, Dikato Motai. The past two waves of industrial action that uh, union members have undertaken have been unlawful, illegal strikes. And uh, what we said is that regarding the wage negotiations, the precondition that the unions have put, uh, we cannot agree to the precondition being that we don't undertake any disciplinary action against members that have been seen to uh, undergone the illegal strike. And we said we, we cannot agree to, to, to that precondition. The South African rand continues to weaken against a basket of major currencies in Asian trade, weakening by 4% or 70 South African cents against the US dollar, compared with the Friday's Johannesburg Stock Exchange closing price. This is the dollar strengthens and investors withdraw funds from emerging markets, bringing the rand's loss to around 15% so far this year. Besides dollar strength, the rand is also reaching to uncertainty of the ruling ANC's land and economic policies. The South African rand reached its weakest level against the U.S. dollar so far at around 16.80 at the beginning of 2016. Economist Magwe Masilela explains. The major markets, unfortunately, they get caught up in the crossfire. The rent being a very liquid uh, currency, unfortunately, it has to suffer 
of the consequences compared to other emerging markets. And unfortunately, it's, it's nothing that's got to do about domestic issues. It's more about sentiments because people have a knee-jerk reaction. And it touched almost 1570. Now it's almost 1468 or so. But I think in the long term, it will be able to stabilize because if you check about the, the situation or the trouble in Turkey, there are more domestic issues more than anything. US dollar trades at 10.37 Botswana Pula. It's at 9.98 in Zambia. In Brex currencies, it's the US dollar is trading at 3.86 Brazilian real, at 67.57 Russian ruble, and at 68.89 Indian rupee, 6.86 Chinese yuan, and at 14.5 to the South African rand. 78 pence to the British pound, 87 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,207, platinum, $813 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $72.57 a barrel. From an African perspective. Right now, it's time for us to find out what is happening in the world of sport with Mr. Figilelengwadi. The Proteas finished their ODI series against Sri Lanka on a disappointing note when they went down by 178 runs to their host in the final match at the R. Pramadasa Stadium in Colombo yesterday. They nevertheless won the series 3-2, having won the first three matches in a row. They now dropped down below New Zealand to fourth place on the ICC rankings as they needed a 5-0 series win to stay at number three. Set a target of 300 for victory, the Proteas never looked like getting close as they were bowled out for 121 in 24.4 overs. Their lowest total against Sri Lanka. The margin of victory was their second worst against the, these opponents. Only four Proteas batsmen got into double figures and the only partnership of any note was the 46 for the fifth wicket between Quentin de Kock, who made top score of 54 and J.P. Dumini. The destroyer-in-chief was spinner Akila Dalanjaya, who retained figures of 6 for 29, the best ever for Sri Lanka against the Proteas. He also finished the series as leading wicket-taker with 14 dismissals. And on to hockey. This is squash news now. Squash South Africa, the SSA, the players and the general public are happy after staging a successful South African Open at the Brooklyn Mall in Pretoria. The special tournament, which was staged in the middle of a busy shopping mall, attracted curious onlookers and drew big crowds. A special glass court was erected to give spectators and the players a unique experience. Although South African players were knocked out in the earlier rounds of the tournament by Egypt, the organizers are aiming to make this annual event. President of Squash South Africa, Stephen Doeg, described this as a worthy exercise. A great showcase for our sport and uh, created a hell of a lot of interest here in Pretoria and the people from Joburg and surrounds of Pretoria have all been flocking in to come and watch. Squash has been unbelievable, you know, we've got players from 11 countries around the world coming out to play here, so it's been fantastic to have everybody here. The exposure has been great, we've had good coverage, been good exposure for the sport, yes.
Both the men's and women's final stage on Saturday were contested by players of Egypt. Farida Mohamed faced her compatriot Mena Nasser in the women's final. The men's final was contested by Mazen Gamal and countryman Mohamed El Shebini. 16-year-old Farida Mohamed, who was crowned the women's champion this year, seems destined for greater things. It wasn't easy as I'm 16 years old that it's my first PSA tournament. So uh, it's great winning that and I played uh, a lot of good players. It was hard winning uh, double my age actually. So it's a great experience and it's my first PSA so happy to end it like that. I tried playing in a glass court uh, last month in the Worlds. So it's my second time but it's great. The, the crowd here is beautiful. Finally, Golf News, Brendan Stone was the best finisher among the South Africans playing the USPGA, the final major of the year, as Belarive in St. Louis, Missouri. He carried a 68 and ended on an 8 under par tied for 12. The tournament was won by American Brooks Kupka, who shot a final 66 to earn himself his second major title of the season after winning the U.S. Open. Kupka coped well with the pressure as Tiger Woods pushed with a 64 in the final round to finish second and Adam Scott came close before a bogey at the last. Especially with Tiger making that run basically right at that same time when we were on, I think, 10 green and and then from 12, uh, Scotty birdied 12 and 13 um, and it became a really tight race. But the shots I hit coming down the stretch were... Um, we're very good. Uh, we had a perfect number in the 15, uh, and then 16. I mean, I had a laser right at the flag, and um, that's probably go down as probably one of the best shots I've ever hit under pressure. That's the sporting news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Now, as much as I love being here, as much as I love being here with you, I have to say I am very glad that I'm going to be going home within the next four minutes because... Uh, I need to get some shut-eye. I don't know how Lulu and the rest of the team do this every single day. Respect and props to you guys. Uh, but this is how we wrap up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Pumozo Ramakadza, Technical producer Mario Edwards And the rest of the team Thank you so much for listening If you have any comments on our show Be sure to send us a WhatsApp to this number 76300-3327 That is 76300-3327 And if you're outside of the South African borders Be sure to use that international dialing code Which is plus two seven You can also tweet us at Africa. Or you can tweet me personally as well at some underscore Mangesi. Uh, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.org uh, as well if you want to. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa is one of my favorite songs. Ah, I'm definitely going to be dancing out of the studio today and hopefully it's going to get you dancing into your Monday as well. This one is by Flavor. And it's called Noir Baby. Goodbye. God bless. Enjoy the rest of your day.
Odisuya. Aki, aki, alcohol. Me, I want to chop money. I get them plenty, plenty, plenty. Looking for sexy, sexy, sexy. I want some poro, potom, potom, potom. She can't de pion, potom, potom, potom. Waka, waka, baby. Ururu, baby. Kona, kona, baby. And I go tell my mama. And I go tell my papa. And I go tell him, say. I wish I, 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 I wish I,